introduce you to somebody that I'm going to put a picture up of. Um, he's a CMA pastor. There he is with his wife. Um, he serves uh, CMA Church in New Guinea. His name is Moise Mammy. Moise Mammy. Some of you know Ebola has been uh, a continent-wide disaster in Africa uh, and is quickly becoming a worldwide crisis. Uh, the CMA has a relief organization called CAMA, CAMA, Compassion and Mercy Associates, and that CMA uses CAMA to go into areas that need relief, um, water, purification water uh, in this instance, relief from Ebola. And uh, this pastor, Moise, was serving with CAMA. The Washington Post, uh, the Washington Post reported this story. I read it, uh, I read it this morning. When the Ebola outbreak made a resurgence in Guinea in August, after showing signs of stabilizing, Moise Mami knew what he needed to do. The Guinean pastor, who had already been traveling from remote village to village three times a week to spread awareness about preventing and, contamin- uh, preventing, uh, and containing the deadly virus. But as the outbreak uh, fired up again, Manny and a team began going to the villages. These are remote villages in Africa that he serves five times a week. The instruction they provided was simple. It focused on washing and water purification processes. But Manny was convinced that more visits to more isolated areas in Africa were going to be necessary to end the deadly epidemic. It was exhausting work, and the team often encountered resistance. Manny told others, but he said it needed to be done. This Ebola is a menace that can overrun the country, he said, and he recently warned that in an email to the leaders of the CMA back in Colorado Springs. On this Tuesday... On Tuesday, Mammy and his team took a truck that was already damaged by rocks that had been thrown at them during their visit to other remote villages, and they drove it into Wome in the farthest southeastern part of Guinea. This time, they enlisted local officials to help ease the tensions and the fear that was running rampant in that part of the country, which, is now, which was near where the outbreak began. Quote, the meeting started off well. The traditional chiefs welcomed the delegation with ten kola nuts as a traditional greeting, said a resident who was present at the meeting. But a group of young men arrived, and they began throwing stones. And then some members of Mammy's team were dragged away, and then the unthinkable happened. Eight people, including Mammy, were murdered by a mob. Tuesday. Killed in cold blood, a government spokesman said. Their bodies were found on Thursday, some of them dumped in a septic tank behind a primary school. Three of them, the spokesman said, had their throats slit. Many places accepted their teaching. John Erickson, a friend of Mammy's who works with the Christian aid organization CAMA, wrote in an online posting. But some villagers had heard a rumor that the bleach they were distributing, which kills the Ebola virus, was actually the virus itself. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Lord, I, uh, my friends and I, I know this happens, Lord, all over the world, multiple times a day. But when it strikes somebody that... In a sense, I mean, I got, Lord, I, you know, I got the prayer concern when, when these folks were taken, and then two days later I got the news of, of their fate. And so, Lord, we just want to lift up uh, our brother's family, Lord, his wife and his five kids, Father. I pray, Lord, it's our great prayer together. We come before you and we ask, God, that you would make very clear to his wife and his kids all the promises in the scripture about orphans and widows. Lord, all of those things would be very present and true and real this woman and her children. Lord, your people need you in Africa and here. These are the kind of the things that made the early saints say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Now, if you watch a lot of sermons and you listen to a lot of sermons, you know that most sermons like to start off, or most preachers like to start off a sermon with something kind of light and funny. And uh, obviously, we are not doing that this morning, and we're not able to get anybody loosened up, you know, uh, and engaged, maybe at a laughter level. But somehow that kind of feels right, because this is going to be one of those mornings, and this is going to be one of those topics, I think. This morning, we hit... We hit talk two in a series called Thrive. You see, the scripture says as those of us that want to follow Jesus, it shouldn't be our goal to, and this is kind of the old-time Christian way. The old-time Christian methodology was lock yourself up in your house, go out into the woods, live, uh, live by yourself because you don't want to sin and you just got to just try to survive. But the truth is the scripture doesn't call us to survive. The scripture calls us to thrive, to have abundant life, to, to be joyful in all circumstances. Well, how do you do that? Especially when stories like this come across your Facebook page and your email accounts. So we've been looking at this book that Paul writes to a church in Philippi. It's different. If you weren't here last week, we talked about the background of the book. It's different than other books. Most of the letters that Paul writes to churches, he's correcting them about some problem that's going on. You know, there's division, there's a lot of rampant sin, there's, you know, sexual messes, and he's, he's trying to tell them this is not how we behave as believers. But that's not what he's saying to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi had actually stood by him through a very dark period. Now, if you know the history of what I want you really to get out of this more than anything else from a history standpoint is, Paul is writing this from a prison likely a hole in the ground in Rome, they believe, um, although there's some de- debate about which of his imprisonment places it was written in. And he's likely leaned up against the wall, and he's got his feet in shackles. And he's been beaten with rods, and he's been whipped, and he's been starved. In fact, it was the Philippian church that sent a meal with somebody to, to, to help Paul. And the Philippians are feeling very down. They're very discouraged. They're looking at Paul and they're going, oh my gosh, even our leaders are, are getting uh, jailed. Maybe this whole thing is a farce. Maybe this whole thing's not true. And Paul, in the condition he's in, hungry in a pit with his feet in shackles, he writes this church to encourage him. And in fact, if you look up Philippians uh, on the internet, the most common name for it is this book of joy. Well, how do you have joy? How do you thrive in those circumstances, is it possible? And so what I would like to know and what I, I'd like to see us discover together is, is it possible that you can thrive despite the worst circumstances? And I know your circumstances. I had some just folks after the service this morning just coming up to me weeping over their circumstances. Um, so I, I, if you're suffering this morning, This is for you, I guess. How is it that you're here? Why are you here today? I mean, some of you grew up in a Christian home, probably, right? And and your mom and dad taught you about Jesus, and and you've believed on him, and you've kind of followed him since that day. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe maybe you ran into somebody. I ran into a beautiful girl, and she was a Christian, and her family shared with me Christ, and, and I came to him that way. Or or maybe you, you, you came to him through a, a crusade of one, or one kind or another. Billy Graham. Anybody go to a Billy Graham crusade in here? And anybody reach through a Billy Graham crusade in here? I know there's some folks in our church that would say, I came to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. I've talked to them. Maybe you were up late night watching one of those guys on TV. And, you know, something was stirring in your heart. And you said, you know, I, I, I feel this need, this desire for Jesus. I don't know what it is that brought you here today. But the church, I would say over the last bunch of years, has done a really... A, a really strong job on evangelism, on reaching people uh, with what is referred to as the good news of the gospel. But 
I have to be honest, I think we've taken this concept of good news to kind of new heights, uh, which maybe aren't really true. Let me explain to you. We promise, and I don't know, maybe you were promised, if you would come and follow Jesus, that you would get love and joy and peace and prosperity. It's all there, man. Just accept Christ and all these things will be true in your life. Now, at the end of the day, the motives were good and all those things are true. But what was shared with you was not really the full, accurate call of the Scripture for those who would follow Jesus. So this week, when when Moise died, uh, I read that you could find his testimony about how he wound up being a a Christian in the middle of Guinea, that he had written it in the CMA, the Alliance, you know, our denomination's monthly magazine, in 2008. So I went back and I pulled up that, uh, that article that he had written about how he came to Christ, what he was promised, what drew him in to follow Jesus. So I'd like, I'd like to read the story from you, because he, he was a man very, very far from Jesus by his own admission. He was caught up in the African kind of uh, paganism of the day. In fact, one story recounted uh, before his conversion was that uh, it was a belief in the culture he was in that when your wife was breastfeeding a child, you couldn't sleep in the same bed with her because if you, if you did and you wound up you know, having an intimate moment together, the child was going to die. So therefore, men were not allowed to sleep with their, their wives. So what he would do is he would go out into the village and he would bring other women home and sleep with those women in front of his wife. And this was the culture he was brought up in and this was going on in the village. But one day, one day, he runs into an evangelist. Quote, I met a man by the side of the road. As he shook my hand, I heard a clear word in my heart saying, ask this man what he does. He told me he was an evangelist, and he asked me if I was a believer. I told him no, and I asked him how much I should pay to become a Christian. That would be cultural for him in those days. He told me it would cost a lot. He told me it would cost a lot, but it wouldn't be money. I would have to give. It wouldn't have to be money I would have to give. It would be my whole life. And then he told me that God loves me. This was the first time I had heard someone say that. He told me it would cost my whole life, and then he told me that God loved me. He told me that it would cost my whole life, and then he told me that God loved me. So when I looked up his testimony, when it pops up on the CMA website, the title of, uh, of, of the article pops up first in big, bold letters, and it almost took my breath away when it popped up. It, it had his picture from 2008, and above it it said, it will cost your whole life. There are many promises in the Scripture for those that would come after Jesus. There's promises of peace and love and joy and forgiveness and power and provision. Those are all true. They're all true, and many of those promises are the reason we've been drawn towards Jesus. But there is another promise in the Scripture that we don't talk about. There is a promise for those that would follow Jesus in the Scripture that we don't promise or don't talk about. The promise is that you will suffer. First Peter, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, if you live long enough in the world, you know you're going to suffer, right? None of us get out of here alive. 
So there's always going to be some suffering coming into our lives. But that's not what really the Bible is talking about here. The Bible is actually saying that for Christians, for those people that want to follow Jesus and give their life to him, there is a promise for you, a promise to you of joy and peace and love and suffering. It's, it's not general suffering. It's you will, as a follower of Christ, there will be suffering that will come into your life. Now, why, why would this God that loves me make a promise to me that if I come to him, I'm going to suffer? Am I just pulling verses out that, you know, oh, you know, that's not really what the Bible says? Because you would think if this was a major theme in the Bible, you might have heard this before. But we never talk about it. You ever evangelize any of your friends and go, hey, man, if you come to Christ, I, you, you are going to suffer. Yet, it's replete in the scriptures. You want to do a little, something a little bit fun? Watch this. Matthew. Jesus says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, there's nothing strange about a daughter-in-law being against her mother-in-law. However, some of those other things don't seem like the family-friendly, the focus-on-the-family-oriented Jesus because he seems to be indicating that there might be a cost associated with following him and it might bring pain into your family. And if, in our country, this is usually not true, although there are, you know, there are big religions in our country. I've had friends who have gone home to their parents and said, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start following this Jesus at radical levels and their family freaks. Well, that was Matthew. How about Mark? Then he called the crowd to him, Jesus, again, along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple is going to get everything they pray for. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me and, and for the gospel will save it. Okay, that's Mark. How about Luke? Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you, and when, and when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you're, you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now because you're going to mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Let me ask you a question. Does everybody speak well of you? So that was Matthew, Mark, Luke. How about John? If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Okay, so anybody tracking with me here? So we got Matthew, and we got Mark, and we got Luke, and we got John. Guess what's next? Acts. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. Romans. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. If we're God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we share in his 
sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. First Corinthians. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Paul says, I face death every day. Second Corinthians. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so all in, we share in the abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Second Corinthians, and our hope for you, let's go, let's go on. Galatians, those who want to impress me. Okay, you want to avoid suffering? There's a way to avoid suffering for Christ. Here's how you avoid it. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They're false prophets. They're they're telling people what they want to hear. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the, the cross of Christ. Next. Put on, this is Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Next, Philippians. Now, I'm only taking you up to where we are. I could do this book by book by book by book. Anybody getting this? Anybody anybody get wooed to Christ through all these promises? Put Philippians back up. Here's Paul in jail, in the pit, legs shackled, starving, beaten. And what does he write? For it's been granted to you. It's been given to you. It's a blessing for you. On my behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now that I still have. Now you might wonder, if we're talking about thriving, why are we talking about suffering? Because they seem like polar opposites. What could one have to do with another? Why would this God that loves me, why would he come along and say, and if you come after me, I promise you this, I promise you suffering. There's a real juxtaposition there, right? Because the truth is, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want all those things, if you want to thrive, suffering is part and parcel of the promise. To get those things, there is going to be suffering. You can't avoid it. Check this out. And now, this is crazy stuff. Stick with me here. This is being proven by science today, and it's blowing my mind as I read this, okay? This is crazy. You want to know why God allows suffering? Why he allows you to go through some of the hard times you go through? For a long time, researchers looked at what enabled people to endure suffering. That's what we always want to know as Christians. Well, how do I get through suffering? How do I get out of suffering? But over the last decade, the focus has shifted from looking not only how they make it through, but how people are able to go through and come through it stronger than before. So just as there is a syndrome called post-traumatic stress syndrome, there is also a syndrome called post-traumatic growth syndrome. It's a true story. Scientists are studying this over the last decade. One line of thinking is that adversity can lead to growth. Another line of thinking is that the highest level of growth cannot, the highest level of growth in your life cannot be achieved without adversity. It may be that somehow adversity leads to growth in a way that nothing else does. Fascinating. Yet we spend every waking moment of our lives trying not to suffer. 
Richard uh, Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun, two researchers into this concept of post-traumatic growth, interviewed many people who had suffered traumatic life events, such as bereavedness, serious illness, cancer, house fires, combat, and, and rep being refugees. They found for many of these people dealing with this trauma, there was, they were, it was a powerful spur for personal development. It wasn't just a question of learning to cope with it or to adjust to the situation. They actually gained significant benefit. In fact, they experienced positive life changes. They gained a new inner strength. They discovered skills and abilities they knew they never pos- they didn't know they possessed. They became more confident and appreciative of love life, particularly of the small things that they used to take for granted. Listen to this for followers of Jesus. You want to know why Jesus allows suffering? They became more compassionate for the sufferings of others. That sounds like something Jesus would want in his followers. And more comfortable with intimacy. They became more comfortable with intimacy. That sounds like something Jesus would want in his followers. And so they had deeper and more satisfying relationships. One of the most common changes was that they developed a more philosophical or spiritual spiritual attitude to life. In fact, here's their conclusion. You have it, Darren? One of the most common changes was that they developed a more philosophical or spiritual attitude towards life. Um, their sufferings led them to a deeper level of awareness. What if? Now, see, we can't put this, this CD in the visitor gift bag, okay? But this is just between us. What if, and this is a tough truth, it's, it's not going to be popular, but what if suffering isn't to be avoided at all costs? What if suffering is the only way to truly know God? What if suffering is the only way to truly know God. What if suffering is to be welcomed, like Paul says, and not avoided? So Psychology Today, this this article, I I kept doing research on this topic. I found it fascinating. They continued, another psychologist, Judith Neal, studied 40 people who went through post-traumatic growth after life events, serious illness, divorce, or the loss of a job, as well as near-death experiences. Listen to this, okay? Initially, my friend Scott Pretty was here this morning. Scott's father fell and broke his neck. And his father's been paralyzed for the last eight or nine months. And, and, and Scott and I were talking about this in the hall, and he, it, Scott was choking up because this was speaking to him. He said, initially, most of them experienced a dark night of the soul where their previous values were thrown into question. God, what I thought I believed about you, now I don't know anymore because, God, I'm suffering were what they previously believed were thrown into question. And life ceased to have meaning. But after this, they went through a phase of spiritual searching, trying to make sense of what had happened to them, and find new values. And finally, once they had found new spiritual principles to live by, they entered a phase of spiritual integration where they applied these new principles. At this point, they found meaning and purpose in life together with a gratitude for being alive. You want to know why God allows suffering in your life? This is crazy stuff. Paul writes this 2,000 years ago. But I'm going to give you the craziest one. This one, when, this one I, when I read this one, it just jumped off the page. I'm going, Paul, this is crazy. What? There's a couple famous verses in the Bible, right? What's, what's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believed in him, you know. What's another really famous verse in John 3? Lest a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? used to see the football games on Monday Night Football, right? Well, the German philosopher, uh, Nietzsche, anybody know what Nietzsche's famous line is? God is dead, 
right? That's Nietzsche's whole, his whole career is built on this line. If you Google God is not dead, Frederick Nietzsche comes up. Nietzsche famously wrote God is dead, was no stranger to suffering. Listen to his life. For most of his life, he suffered from excruciating migraine, which left him incapacitated for days, as well as terrible stomach pains. He was forced to retire from his professorship at the university at age 35 due to his ill health. He spent the rest of his life in isolation. He never found a wife or a girlfriend. He was ostracized by his intellectual peers because of his unconventional ideas, like God is dead. He had very few friends. He was uh, unsuccessful as an author. He had to pay for his books to get published. Eventually, his writings did begin to filter through to some leaders, but then he was showing signs of mental instability. At the age of 45, he had a complete mental breakdown, and he spent the last 10 years of his life in a catatonic state living with his mother. Now, we might not agree with Nietzsche's conclusion, but his brilliance can't really be avoided. And in his writing, in his suffering, this is what he wrote. He said, I see my suffering as, quote, the ultimate emancipator of spirit, which was essential for his philosophy, since it forces us philosophers to descend into the nethermost depths. Remember, Paul says, examine yourselves. Nietzsche's going, this suffering is forcing me to really look at myself. I doubt whether such suffering improves a man, he said, but I know that it makes him deeper. His experience was that a... Do we have this? This is great. Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead. His experience was that when a person emerges from episodes of illness, isolation, or humiliation, it is as though he has been born again. He has a new skin with a finer taste for joyfulness. It turns out God's not dead after all. But if you really want to find him, he's probably found in the suffering. Now let me ask you a question. Is it your greatest desire? Have you spent your entire life, all of your money, all of your time, all of your resources, have you spent everything you've had on trying to avoid pain rather than taking something out of the pain? Because I've given almost every hour I've, I've, I've been awake to trying to avoid suffering. Is it your greatest desire to get out of the pain or to get something out of the pain? What if God understands you better than you do? You know, as a parent, right, nothing has helped me understand what God thinks about me more than having a son and a daughter. Because it's hard to understand until you have a kid and then you realize the way God thinks about you, Right? Now, moms and dads, let me pose this question to you. Imagine you were handed a script of, a newborn ch- of your newborn child's entire life. Think about your kid, and you're given this new baby, you're given a script of his whole life, and you're given an eraser, and you're given five minutes to edit out of his life whatever you would like to take out of it. You read that she'll have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she'll make a great circle of friends, but then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she'll get into her pervert college, but while she's there, she'll lose a leg in a car crash. Following that, she'll go through a difficult depression, and a few years later, she'll get a great job, but then she'll lose that job in an economic downturn. And she's going to get married, but then she's going to go through the grief of separation. With this script of your child's life before you and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? 
One psychologist posed this question to, to, in a hypothetical exercise. Wouldn't you want to take all of the stuff that would cause pain for them away? And in the first service, there was a mother and a daughter sitting there. And the daughter was about 12 years old. And the daughter goes, yeah. And the mother goes, no. <laughs> and it was just the, the most pure thing I had ever seen. You wouldn't, would you? Why? Because most of us know that some of the pain would cause them to grow into the best version of the person they could ever be. Is it possible that you and I, with God our Father in heaven, actually need the adversity and the setbacks, maybe even the crisis and trauma, to reach what he calls us to be, to be all that we were called to be? Paul seemed to think so. He said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why does Paul say rejoice in our sufferings? He says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, character hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. So it turns out that thriving and suffering are much more closely related than you could ever imagine. Now, if you're visiting this morning and you haven't given your life to Christ... You might take out of this, okay, that's great. When I suffer, I can learn from this and I can change and be a better person. And that's the nugget you should go home with. But there's a couple little interesting things for, for us that are believers here I just want to end with for you that would say, I'm trying to follow Christ this morning. Two things that Paul with his feet in stocks would tell you. He says, one, I want to put this picture of this Korean missionary team up. You may have heard about this. This is a a Korean missionary team. This picture was taken in 2007, and they were going to go into Afghanistan. um, And in Afghanistan, they were were going to do some evangelism work. Unfortunately, they ran into the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they were all scooped up and captured. This picture is off of the Wikipedia page. You can go back and look this up when you get home. As they were taken, the night uh, night before they were going to be pulled apart into teams, there was 23 of them. They were separating them out into different groups of three and four apiece. They, uh, they, there was one Bible. One of the girls still had her Bible on her. And so on that night, they gathered in a circle, knowing it was going to be their last night together, not knowing what was going to become of them. And she tore the Bible into 23 different pieces. And she handed a section of the Bible out to each of her friends, and she said, take this, whatever happens to you, let it comfort you when you're in the hole, when you're in the pit, when you're in the farmhouse, whatever they're doing to you, just hold on to this. And so they began to to weep together and pray together and sing together. And one by one, they went around this circle and they talked to each other and and, and they started to pray to God. They said, God, whatever. If it means that I'm going to die and this is somehow, this is somehow good, this is somehow going to bring glory to your kingdom, so be it. And they each confessed that prayer. And when they got to the end of the circle, one of the men in the picture stood up and he said, I want you guys to know that it's, he was the leader of the group. He said, I want you guys to know it's likely that we're going to die. They're not going to let us out of here alive, at least some of us. So what I did before we got in the room tonight, I went to the leader of the group that's holding us and I told him that I was in charge and I need to be the first one to die. And then a second man in the picture stood up and he said, that's not what's going to happen here. He said, uh, I too am a pastor, but I am also your elder. And as a result, you're not dying first. I'm dying first. This is a true story. Third guy stands up and he says, neither of those two things are going to happen. I am both a pastor and I am both an elder. And I'm the only one here that's ordained by the church. So I am going to be the one, the first one that's going to die. And he was. And another one of them was killed. And I think that the other 21 were released. 
And I was listening to somebody that had interviewed one of the, the, the one pastor that had made it back. And he said, you know what's unique about this whole thing is he said, it's been a year since we've been back in Seoul. And he goes, I'm telling you, every one of these people, every one of the 20 of them have come back to me at one time or another over this last year and looked me in the eyes and said, Pastor, don't you want to go back? There was something that was happening when I was in that pit. There was something happening when... when when I just had that little piece of the scripture, there was something happening where I didn't know if I was going to live to see the next sunrise. I was so close to Jesus. It was like he was with me there. And pastor, I've been back for a year. I can't find it anywhere. I go to church and I try to serve God, but I can't get as close to God as I was in that pit that one day. Pastor, don't, don't, isn't there a part of you, pastor, that wants to go back? This is what suffering does. Suffering will take you to Jesus like no other thing you've ever experienced. Stephen the martyr, as he's being stoned, right? What happens? He looks up and he says, I see Jesus. Fire away. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get tossed into a furnace. Fire everywhere. Who's the fourth guy? This is what suffering does in your life. You spend every waking moment of your life trying to keep yourself comfortable. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. We never need him because we make ourselves plenty comfortable in this life as it is. And God is saying, there is so much growth for you to be had in the suffering. It's not that I need to bring it into your life, but I can use it in your life. What does Paul say to the Philippians? He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, I want all those promises. I want the peace and the joy and the prosperity. Of course I want those. And he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to participate in his suffering. Suffering refines you. Suffering is where you find God like no other place. Suffering, it turns out, is the place of rebirth. And of course, just like all the time in Scripture, and the band can start to come up, it's not, it's not always just about you either. Suffering has power that is hard to comprehend. But here's what Paul, if Paul said to the, 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 those who were about to give up, they were saying, well, I don't understand, Paul. Maybe, maybe we made a mistake. You're in prison. Things aren't going well for us. Here's what Paul writes in, in Philippians 1, 12 to 14. He goes, I want you to know, you might be getting confused because we're all suffering, but I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. There's a saying, there's a song, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What's happening to me is actually serving to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Hear me on this. God is not the cause of all of our suffering, but God will use your suffering. God is not the cause of all your suffering, but he will use your suffering in you and for others. Many of you know our church suffered a horrible, suffered a horrible loss this summer of a 17-year-old boy, Jack Timmerman. And our loss is minimal compared to the loss of his mom and dad, Don and Jackie. And I told him that night, and I'm I'm trying not to cheapen this moment. Part of me didn't want to bring it up, but... The night, the night that Jack passed away, I was at Don's house, and um, there's a lot of people around, and Don wanted to get out of there, and uh, he, he took me up to Jack's room, and it was him and I, we were standing in Jack's room, and we were talking about Jack, and he said, let's pray. And so we, we got down on our knees and, and, and put our heads down on Jack's bed. And I heard that man who just lost his son saying in tears, 
And God, you know, if you can use us. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt. But he had this crazy prayer like, God, if you can use this somehow, if there'd be some way, something good could come out of this. And I will tell you that I get a text or a phone call from Don Timmerman every week, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Yes, yesterday, Joan will tell you, he called me yesterday to tell me every time he picked up the phone, he says the same thing. You're not going to believe what God is doing. You're not going to believe what God is doing with this, John. It's unbelievable. I don't know. I know there's been folks here week after week that have been coming to Menham Hills as a result of coming to the funeral. I know there's been people in town that have written handwritten letters that have said, your testimony about Jesus at that funeral has made me look inward at my own spiritual life. Do you know we've raised over $10,000 in Jack's name to build houses in Guatemala City? And Friday night, Don and Jackie were out at the middle of the football field at Randolph as they had their first home game, and, and uh, the coal town was there. It was a mob scene, and they had a moment of silence. And I was looking at the pictures online today, and I saw Don and Jackie just standing there at the middle of the field, and the whole town was looking at them. And it was just this element of, uh, of the whole town has come to know about this Christ because of this tragedy. God didn't cause it, but God can use it. So the question to us this morning as we walk through Philippians is you want to learn to have joy and thrive. The question is, will you spend every moment of your life trying to avoid pain? Or will you begin like Paul to say, bring it on. I will participate in the suffering so I can know my Jesus. Father, we get it wrong so often. I know in this room right now, Lord, my friends, there are some of my friends that are hurting this morning, Lord, hurting in deep places. It's not easy to say that this is a good thing. It sounds silly and spiritual, but God, would you open our eyes and our hearts and bring us to a place where we could actually say, man, this stinks. But God, I, I think I might be starting to see Jesus. Come into those places, God. In Jesus' name, we pray.